sung about our everlasting God who never faints, who never grows weary. We've sung about blessing Him no matter the circumstances in our life, good season and bad season. We bless His name and give Him the praise and honor that is due His name. We've been reminded of how good our God is how strong our God is and that He is on our side. He is for us, not against us. And as we're going to study tonight, that is the God who one day soon is going to call us home and we will be with Him forever and ever, face to face. All of creation, all of the earth, Make straight a highway, a path for the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Call back the sinner, wake up the saints. Let every nation shout out your faith. Jesus is coming soon. Like a bride waiting for her room, we'll be in church ready for you. Every heart longing for our King, we sing, even so come, Lord Jesus, come, even so come, Lord Jesus. All will be new, your name forever, faithful and true. Jesus is coming soon. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for our King. We sing, even so come, Lord Jesus, come. Even so come, Lord Jesus, come. So we wait, we wait for you. God, we wait your coming soon. So we wait, we wait for you. God, we wait your coming soon. Like a bride. church ready for you. Every heart longing for our King, we sing like a bride waiting for her 
church ready for you. Every heart longing for a king. We sing, even so come, Lord Jesus, come. Even so come, Lord Jesus, come. Even so come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord Jesus, that's our heart cry this evening. We anticipate, we are waiting, and we long for that day when that trumpet sounds and you call us home. So Lord, we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. And as we are waiting for you, May we continue to get our lives purified and ready and rid of anything that could get in the way. But that when you return, we will be pure, white as snow, ready for our groom to show up and to be with you forever and ever and ever. So Holy Spirit, teach us this evening from your word. We are listening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would find 1 Thessalonians, we're going to do uh, chapter 4 tonight. You ever had like one of those things where you start out like Thanksgiving and you load your plate up and you got a lot of food on there and it's like, oh my goodness, what did I put on this plate? Well, I had this great ambition that I was going to do chapters 4 and 5 tonight. And then I got into studying and I, and I went, no. We're going to slow it down a little bit and be able to walk through this, these passages a little bit better. I do want to encourage you, though, to read ahead. And if you take notes, especially tonight, you're going to want to take notes uh, to be able to do that. With, or you can go back and you can watch it online and be able to do this. Because we're going to be moving into a couple of sections over the next few weeks. Uh, definitely going to be taking a look at, at uh, some end times discussion and the day of the Lord and, and such things. As we journey through these passages, it's really important for us to understand the context, though. Paul had been in Thessalonica, and it was a church that he didn't get to spend a lot of time in. He got run out of town. Um, and within that, there wasn't a lot of, of, of things that were going on. And we last left the first part of this letter where Paul was concerned on where they were at or were they still really walking with the Lord and and so he sent Timothy to go get an update because they were, of all the persecutions that were going on that he knew was going on within there. It's really hard to live a godly life in an ungodly world, isn't it? It's pressing in and, and to stay the course within this. And it's super easy to get overwhelmed with life and with persecutions that's there. And Paul, from a pastoral heart, is approaching this church of Thessalonica not with a lot of correction, but a lot of encouragement. He wants to encourage them in the things that they're doing well in. And there's a lot that they were doing well with. And he wants to give them a focus. There's an overarching sense of, of uh, grief, though, and desperation that's within the church because of persecutions, because of the deaths, because of the different things that were going on 
And so he wants to bring these encouragements because one of the things that happens with tribulation and persecution is Satan will get you discouraged. And when he gets you discouraged, then you'll either back off in what you're doing or you'll just walk away altogether and you'll be disenchanted with God. And I know that uh, there's people that have become disenchanted with God from time to time. Some are disenchanted with God altogether and they walk away and there's, there's an apostasy that takes place within that. And so after Timothy visits the church, he comes back to Paul and, and gives him an update. And, and then Paul is being able to, to write this letter and these things. So tonight we're going to unpack this, this message. In chapter 4, and he, he really gets into some practical nuts and bolts about encouraging their walk. And one of the things that he encourages them to do is to live an obedient life before the Lord. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 8. He says, Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord, that as you've received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And for this is the will of God that you sang your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. So, as Paul is, has moved through the first part of this letter and he's giving these encouragements, he knows he wants to encourage them. He uses the word, finally. There, is, there are some key words in Bible study. When you see the word finally or the word but or the word then, these are markers when Paul kind of changes gears. And so he's marking this transition of, of, of moving from one thought to another and words of instruction to exhortation. And, and he's asking and begging them. He's actually begging them that they would be a church that lives in obedience as unto the Lord. Why? Because all the world is watching them. All the believers are watching them. They've become an example of what Christ followers should look like. If you haven't figured it out yet, you're a, if you're a Christian following the Lord, you're in a fishbowl. Everybody's watching you and all of your actions are magnified within that. And people are watching to see how you're going to act. And Paul is begging them that that not only are they doing good, but they should do all the more. Notice he says, finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you, what you receive from us, the instruction, how you ought to walk, please God, just as you're actually doing, you're doing it, but you should do this all the more within this. And again, it's not like Paul is saying to them, you know what, you guys, you've got you, 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 you to square yourself up. What he's saying is, elevate your walk. Elevate your walk. Get your, your, your witness to the next level. When you're following the Lord, there's like, okay, yeah, this is good enough. And you get into kind of that cruise mode. And Paul's saying, no. 
Step up your walk. What are some things that you could do better? Not that you're doing bad, but what could you do better in your obedience unto the Lord? What are some of the things that you could do instead of just getting by? How could you push harder? One of the illustrations that he uses, he says, in the things that you've been taught. You know, here at WCF, we teach the word verse by verse in an expository way. We get the word, we unpack it, we give it to you. But once you have it, you've got to do something with it. You've got to get it out of your head and into your heart. You've got to get it into practice. But the deal is, the more you practice the Word of God, the more it becomes part of your DNA. The more it becomes part of you. And you can step up your walk in with that confidence. And, and, you know, sometimes people have a hard time seeing Jesus, but if they see you as the clearest example of Jesus... They can follow you as you follow Christ. And I would say that the church as a whole, the big C, needs to step up their walk. They need to become more obedient as unto the Lord. And Paul is exercising his apostolic authority as a teacher. And he's saying, look at as you've received this instruction. Question. Is Bible study important? I'm kind of preaching in the choir. Y'all are here. But it is. It's the Word of God. It's the breath of life to the believer. And you need to be in the Word, not just on Sundays and not just on on Wednesdays, but every day. If you don't believe me, when you get home tonight, try holding your breath until Sunday. Let's see how that works for you. We need to breathe in the Word of God. And then as we breathe in the Word of God then our lives are filled full of holiness. And then we can walk in that holiness and that newness of life. It's important, as long as we live, not only just to learn the Word of God, but put it into action. To be obedient to it within this. In Paul's earlier letter to the church in Rome, he wrote, And those those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why would he say that? Because... He wanted to make a distinction between the believer that was a Christ follower that was walking in the Spirit versus those that were walking in the flesh. There needs to be this distinction, this separation with them. And so the life that is obedient to God is going to be pleasing to God. The life that is walking in the flesh is going to be disobedient to God, not pleasing to God. And we have these cycles in our life and in our day where we're walking in the Spirit and we walk in the flesh. But the question is, could you maybe walk in the Spirit a little bit more in your day than you do the flesh? Could you be a little bit more maybe aware spiritually and walk in the Spirit a little bit more than you do in the flesh? And I think we would all, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, the answer would be yes. Nobody in this room is perfect. But could could we elevate our game a little? Could we, could we do a little bit better? The answer is yes. But how do we do that? By spending time in the Word and having our, our minds transformed that we can present our bodies as that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. So as we spend time with God, so that's what Paul said. He says, the instructions that you received from us, now do them. The commandments that you did, and, and, and don't disregard them. And with this, he says, for you know 
what you've been commanded, notice, through the Lord. I love the fact that Paul says that the instruction was through the Lord. This is not my idea. The other thing that I think is important to understand, when you go verse by verse expository through the Bible, you are not getting my opinion. You shouldn't. You should get the Word of God and you should receive it and then check it out to make sure it's so. Acts 17.11 Those were more no, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the Word with all readiness and then they studied to see if it was so. And that was the Bereans within this. To be able to be in the Word of God, you should be bringing your Bible and, and looking at it and, and studying this. He goes on to some specific instructions, verses 3 through 8, on what they should do. He says, for this is the will of God. Have you ever heard somebody said, well, I really want to know what the will of God is. I really want to know what the will of God is. And they're looking for some like handwriting on the wall. I'm looking for a job. I want to know what the will of God is. It says it right here. This is what? The will of God. It's right there. What is the will of God? It says the will of God is your sanctification. We can get all wrapped around the axle about, okay, is it God's will that I live here or I live there? If I have this job or I have this job. If I marry this person or don't marry this. Is it God's will I go fishing tomorrow or go to work? If I had my druthers, it would be God's will that I go fishing tomorrow. It's the last day of the season. But, I know it's God's will that I study for Sunday. So, we understand what the will of God is. It's our sanctification within this. Now, that word sanctification, or to sanctify yourselves, as he says, is agiosmos. And the word literally means to make holy and set apart for a specific action of worship. To be set apart for a holy purpose. It's God's will that you would set yourself apart for God's holy purpose and acts of service. Within that. That's God's will. Within that. It's God's will that you would do the work of Jesus and that you would understand that the work is to set yourself apart for that holy purpose. Now, I want to caution you because what it doesn't say is that you are spiritually sanctifying yourself or making yourself holy because there's only one person that did that. His name is Jesus on the cross. But because He has made you holy by paying the penalty for your sins, now you are declared holy and as a holy implement of worship... It is up to you to use yourself for an act of worship unto God. And that's what he's talking about. In every aspect of your life, within that. That you are a worship implement. You've been washed by the blood and set clean. But within this, here's the deal. If Jesus has washed you and made you clean, don't go find the biggest cow manure pile that you could ever find and go roll in it. My dog does that. It's horrible. And so what he says is sanctified is what you're doing is you're avoiding rolling in the manure. You're keeping yourself out of the muck and the mire of the world because you've been cleaned. Why? So that you would be presentable as, as an implement of worship unto God in your speech and your actions. 
Because I can tell you this, if you smell like dung and you're trying to tell somebody that Jesus loves them, they're going to smell the dung more than they hear your words. You keep yourself holy. That way, when you present the gospel and you present yourself as a holy implement, people say, yes, that's credible. And again, so many times people want to know what the specific will is. It's sanctified. Why? So you can give the gospel. That's God's will. You are set apart for a holy purpose to make disciples and to baptize people. That's God's will for your life. Living is living. But spiritual purpose is evangelism and to be able to share the gospel. And so within this, it's God's will that you live a godly life. What does that mean? That means that you may have to not do certain things. <clears throat> that may mean that you have to get rid of some stuff around your house. That may mean that you don't go watch certain movies or, or have different things that's going on. It may mean that you don't do certain things. Why? So that you stay out of the dung. And then when you can give the gospel, you can give the gospel as a holy vessel, not something that's been tarnished by the world. And for the Thessalonians, there was practically three things that, that were given. The first one we have in verse 3, the first thing is to abstain from sexual impurity. Now, why would that be true for the, the people of Thessalonica? You've got to understand what the hearers would have understood. Was pagan worship part of the Greek culture? Absolutely. It was immorality considered a norm of society. Absolutely. It was part and parcel of some of the idolatry that was going on. But if you're a Christian and that's the culture that you came out of, and keep in mind, Christianity is in its infancy at this time. There are more pagans and idolatrous people than Christians at this time. And so what he's saying is, if you've been brought out of this idolatry, abstain from sexual immorality. The word is pornea, meaning premarital or extramarital intercourse, prostitution, incest, or any other sexually improper thing. Now, mind you, it was all normalized in that culture. And he's saying to abstain from that. It was all normalized in idolatry and pagan worship. And he says, abstain from that. Keep yourself from that. And as this new believer, what you're doing is you're pulling yourself out of society and not practicing the cultural norms. Is that something that we see in our world today? Or do we see Christians practicing the cultural norms to try to be relevant? That's dangerous. God has not called you to be relevant. God has called you to be godly. God has not called you to compromise and to be approachable by participating with people that are playing in the dung pile. God has called you to be holy and separate and apart. Does it mean that you need to be this like, you know, self-righteous jerk? No. But you need to keep yourself out of what these cultural norms are. We have cultural norms today that are pornea, that are infiltrating Christian homes, that are infiltrating even the church and church doctrines. Normalizing things that God would say is abhorrent. And as a church and as an individual, you got you got to say no. I, I, I can't. I, I'm sorry. I can't participate that within that. 
Is the world going to scream about it? You bet they are. But he says, it's God's will that you be sanctified, which means you pull out of that. The second one, uh, by avoiding sexual immorality, the second one in verses 4 and 5, that you are to control your own vessel. Notice what he says, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, meaning your body, in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles, Note who do not know God. And it's in the shadow of this sexual immorality that Paul says, okay, not only do you not participate within that, but you control yourself. And it's in the shadow of what would be the cultural norm at the time, the sexual immorality, but other things. And I would think that, that Paul would take it even further to anything that would control you. You need to control your body. Other things don't need to control your body. Ooh, what does that mean? Well, what are some of the things that we might submit to that would control our body? Chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's hilarious. We don't want to go that far. No. But you think about, it, you know, people give themselves over to drugs or to alcohol or, or um, exercise. Anything that would take control of you within that. Facebook. Surfing the internet. Oh, now we're getting personal. Mindless activities that, that would overtake you in these things. That controls your thoughts, your mind, and your behavior. Watching TV, watching TV a lot, watching certain shows a lot that start twisting your thinking or getting you to be um, bitter or, or any of those kinds of things. Anything that would control your body, anything that you give yourself over to be controlled within that. Paul was very clear that Christians should not. Why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You can turn over to 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. It's a rather long passage. Or you can watch it on, on the screen above. It says this, where Paul would write, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for the food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but also raised us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or how do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one with her? For he says, the two become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality and every other sin that a man commits outside of the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body, note, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body want to create a mental image with you. 
Every sin that you commit, you are dragging the Holy Spirit into it with you. He's present. He is present that's there. Everything that you watch, every word that you say, every action that you do, He's present. So many times we try to compartmentalize our life and say, well, this is my Christian life and this is my secular life. And the two don't touch. Well, that's what the Gnostics wanted to teach. That the Spirit is the Spirit and the flesh is the flesh and the two don't touch. As we'll see in a little bit, that's why the Gnostics didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. Because they didn't think anything of the flesh could ever be pure and holy. And they got that wrong. The other thing that I want to emphasize is this. You are created in the image of God. Imago Dei. You, your body, is created in the image of God, Imago Dei. And when you drag that body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, into sinful practices, you're bringing in the image of God into those sinful practices with you. And so he says to them, flee sexual immorality and control your body. You say, well, Carrie, I can't. Yes, you can. It's all about choice, but I can't. Oh, yes, you can. Don't buy the world's lie that because you're an addict or you're because you're this or you're because that, you have no choice. You do. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells within you. The unregenerated person has no choice because they're, they're, they are what they are. You know, you can take a pig, you can take it out, you can clean it up, but what happens when that pig gets out? going to go find the mud. It's going to go, go do that. And so we've got to understand, we've got to, we've got to be careful. Flee immorality. Control your own body. The third, don't transgress or deceit a brother. Be defraud a brother. Two commands that are in the same thing, two infinitives. Don't transgress or sin against a brother and don't defraud another brother or treat him wrong or cheat them. Don't break a trust by dishonesty within that. You're to love one another. And again, the church was doing good, but he's saying, don't let up. Don't let up. Be in that place. Be kind to one another. And when you're kind to one another, you can judge one another. And understand, when you defraud somebody, you don't have to deal with them. You've got to deal with God. Because he says, God's the judge. God's going to be the judge that judges between you. And notice in verse 6, he says, the Lord is the avenger of all things. Oof. Just don't do it. Bad idea. I was talking with somebody even this afternoon that was defrauding somebody and, and had to exercise um, some counsel and, and pastoral authority was exercised and said, look it, you've defrauded them. You've got to go make it right within that. Why? Because when you defraud a brother, you create room for Satan and a schism within the church. When you defraud or you, or you treat somebody poorly, they leave, and they leave angry and, and with unresolved issues that are not good. So within this, we need to understand that, that God has given us this, this challenge to be sanctified before the Lord, to be in this place that's holy that's there. And we've got to understand that forgiveness, forgiveness is important. Forgiveness doesn't remove the consequences. Forgiveness restores the relationship, but it doesn't remove the consequences. 
When you sin against God, will God forgive you? Yes. Will He remove the consequences? No. How do I know that? Take a look at David. King David. He was a adulterer and a murderer. Did he was he forgiven by God? Yes. What was the consequence? He lost his child. He lost his family. His kids lost respect. It was horrible within this. The consequences of sin can be forgiven, but you're still on the hook for what you do. And you've got to live with those consequences. And God is, God is that avenger within this. He'll forgive you, but you get what you get. And God's called us to live in this domain of holiness. When He says sanctify yourselves, He literally means place yourself in the domain of holiness. Within that. Now, does that mean that I can't be in the world? You can be in the world, but not of the world. How do I know that? You're Bible students. How do you know that? Who was in the world, but not of the world, and completely perfect? Jesus. Was he accused of, of drinking with the, the, the wine bibbers and hanging out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors? Yes. Was he 100% approachable by them all? Absolutely. Did he ever sin or compromise? No. He is the greatest example of one who remained sanctified for the holy purpose. What was his holy purpose? The gospel. And that's the example. That's the model. You say, well, I'm not Jesus. And I know you're not. But you have the Spirit of God in you. And so we don't get to say, well, I'm not Jesus, so I just can't measure up. Oh, no, you can. It's about choice. It's about the decision. And so within this, we've got to understand that, that as Paul would say, that God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification or purity. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but he's rejecting God who gives the Spirit in you. And so within this, I think it's incongruent for you to call yourself a Spirit-filled believer and live a life of impurity. It's incongruent. You cannot call yourself a Spirit-filled, born-again Christian and live a life of impurity. That can't happen. It's impossible. And within this, if you say this, you're calling God a liar. Paul clearly calls the believers not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And you can read about it in Ephesians 4, 17-32. Because when you live incongruent to who you are, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. You want to remove some of the trauma in your life? Some of the difficulties? Sanctify yourself. What does that mean? Take out your trash. And, and, and deal with these issues. And you say, well, I'm doing pretty good. Good. Do better. Do better. And keep on keeping on. Why? Because the time is short. He goes on and he says, okay, so if that's the manner that you live, verses 1 through 8, then how do you love? It's one thing to live a sanctified life. But a sanctified life is also one that's meant to be loving. And love one another. And notice what he says in verses 9 through 12. He says, Now as to the love, brethren. So here we have now. So it gives us a transition. Now as to the love of the brethren. You have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, 
you do, no, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel even that much more. There he goes again. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will have, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not have any need. So what does he say? Well, the first thing that he does is he says that we're to love one another in this spiritual response. As you are sanctified and sanctifying yourself, you're to love one another. And the Holy Spirit's the guide on how to love. There are some people that are porcupines. Have you ever tried to hug a porcupine? It doesn't work. You get close to them, that tail comes around and just slaps you really hard. So you can like kind of do the long distance love, you know. I love you from a distance. But you don't need to run from them. And so as a believer, we need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be our guide how to love. Have you ever prayed that way? It's easy to love the lovable, but how do you love the ones that are the porcupines? Well, you pray and say, Holy Spirit, give me wisdom on how to love this porcupine. And he'll tell you to be able to be in that place. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. He said this in Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk in the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And later on in verses 5.22-23, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's interesting because that's a singular fruit. And then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You want to know how to love? Trust in the Holy Spirit. Say, God, give me more love. He says, excel in love. Let the love grow with them. And, and let that love be that spiritual response. This church of Thessalonica, along with the other churches in Macedonia, were known for their love. How do we know that? Because if you remember when Paul gathered up the offering for the, for the persecuted church in Judea, they gave more than anybody else because of their love to people they didn't even know. I know that this church, WCF, has great love. We have great love because it's a giving church to those people that are in need, to our missionaries, to one another. Last Saturday was an example. Whole family that was here. Lost a mom and, and, and two kids. And the grandpa was broken. And, and within that. And after it was all over, I said, do you feel loved? He said, yes. And he ran around and freaked everybody out by giving everybody hugs. Big logger coming around. I'm coming in for a hug. I'm like, dude, you're in my space. Love. Within this, you think about this brotherly love. It's the support of the believers and even the support of the church. Yet there is a danger. There's a danger of letting your love grow cold. That's dangerous. When you let your love grow cold. How does it grow cold? You grieve the Holy Spirit. You get out of the Word of God. You stop obeying God. And your love will grow cold within this. But as long as the Holy Spirit is fanning those flames inside you, that love will grow. And the world will know that love. And as long as we're in this world and in this flesh, 
we constantly need to be taught by the Holy Spirit how to love more. Paul gives some exhortations here, four to be specific, in verses 10 to 12 about the church. One, to be abundant in love. In other words, grow in your capacity to love that much more. Two, to love the value of living peacefully. What does he mean by that? Loving the value of living peacefully. It means avoiding the quarrels. According to the public debate. What is the, one of the most things that tells people that the church is not a loving church? When believers are fighting against other believers. And gossiping and backbiting. And the garbage is coming out of your mouth. And people go, I don't want anything to do with that. Many, many years ago when I was youth pastor here and... and And it's sad to me to say that our church went through a church split. Many of my youth left the church. And the number one comment, as I asked them, as they say, we're not coming here anymore, was this. Why should I come here and watch adults fight when I can stay home and watch it? And that was the perception of the youth and how the adults in this church were handling themselves during that split. That was sad. Never should be. And Paul says in this, he says, the outsiders are watching you. They're watching how you fight. More, they're watching what you post on Facebook. They're watching how you get in the midst of stuff that doesn't belong to you. And Paul was very clear. To love the value of living peacefully, which means avoiding quarrels and public debates. That becomes a bad witness, as verse 12 says, so that you'll behave appropriately towards those on the outside. The third thing, mind your own business. That's what it says. The text literally says, mind your own business. Attend to your own business. Now, is that talking about being a busybody? No, actually it's not. They already covered that one. Talking about being idle. Idleness. Mind your own business or put your hand to your own work. Be busy. What happens with idleness? Idleness becomes the devil's workshop. Hands that have nothing to do are going to find something to do. But if you you keep yourself busy and you say, well, you know, I'm tired. I don't have enough time. I can guarantee this. We all have the same commodity. Every single person in this room, we all have the same commodity. You know what it is? 24 hours in a day. And if you wake up in the morning, you've got that much time. And we all have the same amount of time. How you spend it now is up to you. How you spend it is up to you. I would challenge you to limit some of the idleness that you do. The, the, the swiping on the Facebook or the watching the, the Hallmark or some of the things that, that are just idleness and time. And, and replace it. Remove it and replace it with something that's productive as unto the Lord. Because if you don't mind your own business, the devil will get you distracted with something. Which leads into the next one, which is work with your own hands. Or with, in other words... In the effort of not being lazy, be self-supporting and contribute to the community. What he's saying is don't look for the handouts. 
Work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. Was Paul someone that worked with his own hands? Yes, many times. Many times he'd go into a community and he would build tents and he would do things. Why? Because he didn't want to be a burden on somebody else. What would it be like if our society today, if everyone was productive, worked with their own hands, and they were busy doing something productive, either earning an income or, or contributing to community? Would there be any need in our society? No. How do I love? Well, I love and love well by growing in love. I love and love well because I seek to live peacefully with others. I love and I love well because I keep my mind busy on the things that are right. And I love to love well by doing things that will benefit other people and so that I'm not a burden on anybody within that. He's giving them the words for community within that. And he says, why? Two reasons. So you'll have a good witness and you won't have any personal need. You'll have a good witness without and you have no personal need that is within. And not having that, that critical spirit within that. The last part is verses 13 to 18. We'll be camped out on these verses the rest of the night within this. And I want to preface this because so many people come to these passages as the key passages for eschatology, which are the end times things. And i got to frame it in the context in which Paul wrote. Paul was not writing a treaty on eschatology or the rapture of the church. Paul was writing to a church that had people in it that were hurting and grieving. And how do you comfort those that are grieving? Many of the people of the church had died during persecutions and other things, and so he writes comfort for the believers. But the comfort that he gives is a resurrection hope. And that's the key. So we've got to understand what this is in context and, and not get sidetracked on it. And the first thing is, how do you comfort somebody who's grieving? How do you comfort those that have lost a loved one? Look at verse 13. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as those, or as do the rest, who have no hope. That is the opening statement for this treaty. That sets the pattern for this. We don't want you to be uninformed, which implies what? You're uninformed. For whatever reason, either it hasn't been covered in the teaching or all of these things, they were lacking the information on how do you give somebody hope when they're grieving within this. And so his focus on this passage is to encourage the church to love by comforting those who are grieving. And, by do, and how do you do that? You remind them of the resurrection hope that is in there and the details of the resurrection hope. And the return of the Lord is only half of the message. And again, we get so wrapped up in looking at the rapture and the return of the Lord, we miss the rest of the message that is there. There are two groups of people in this world today. The one that grieves having no hope. Why? Because they're dead in their sins and they remain dead in their sins. If you are dead in your sins, you have no hope. That's one class of people. 
The other class of people are those who do have hope. Why? Because you're not dead in your sins anymore because Jesus paid the price for your sins. You have a resurrection hope. So if you have hope, a resurrection hope, don't grieve like those who have no hope. You know better. You just have to be reminded of it within this. And so this comfort is coming there, and, and it's a comfort that, that there is life after death within this, that there is a resurrection hope. And it's not just life after death. Remember, why are they grieving? Their loved ones died. What are they not knowing or not remembering? That their loved ones may have died, but they're going to be reunited with them. That's the key within this. Now, what was happening in Thessalonica in the region were the Gnostics that were saying that there is no real resurrection hope. There is no real resurrection. The flesh can't be resurrected because flesh cannot inherit heaven because flesh, flesh, all flesh is inherently evil. So that there's a spiritual resurrection, but there's no real resurrection. It reminds me of those people that will say things like when people die, well, they died and now they became angels. No. When people die, they don't become little naked babies with wings flying around in the air. You're not little cherubs. You don't become an angel. Angels were created as a, as a creation of God separate from the creation of man. And there is no transition. You don't become an angel within this. The Gnostics likely had this teaching that denied not only the bodily resurrection because they believed all physical sin, but what is, the, what is the fallacy in that thinking? If there is no bodily resurrection because all, all flesh is sinful, then what resurrection are they actually denying? Jesus' resurrection. That Jesus didn't physically rise. That there was no bodily resurrection with Him. And so they were denying that. Now, as I said, Paul didn't, didn't intend this to be a full explanation of the second coming. But he wants them not to ignore the teaching concerning his coming. There's, there's a, two words. One is parousa. It's the, it's the coming of Jesus. And then there's the apocalypse. And that's the revelation of Jesus. They're two different words that are used talking about the coming. And within this, he says, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Verse 13. Why? Because the resurrection hope is based on Jesus. Notice what he says in 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe that? Are you sure? You don't sound like you believe it. Okay. Much better. <laughs> if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So, what do we find in this verse? One is we find what's called a first-class conditional statement. And within this it says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do believe that, it's actually creedal, it's, it's a foundation of faith, 
then based on this truth, we can look forward not only to our own resurrection, bodily resurrection, but what else can we look forward to? The bodily resurrection of those who have died in whom? In Christ. So Paul is writing to believers about believers. You've got to be clear on that. Not everybody that dies goes to heaven. Not everybody that dies is going to be resurrected unto life. Only those that die in Christ. There is a resurrection for the ungodly. That's a resurrection unto judgment. But Paul specifically doing what for these people? He's trying to encourage them. So he's talking about the brothers and sisters that have died in faith. He earlier would mention it and speak of it in 1 Corinthians 15, 17-20, where he says, And if Christ has not been raised, that's a second class condition, meaning if He hasn't been raised, and, and it means a negative, then your faith is worthless. And it would be. But He has been raised. But He would say, and you're still in your sins. Then, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So that's the condition. So if the first class, if the first condition is true, if he has not been raised, then the second condition is true, then everybody is dead. You follow. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, that in other words, we only have hope in Christ as it pertains to this temporal life, then we're to be men of most pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. Because we don't hope in Christ only in the temporal life that He was a good teacher. Our hope and trust in Him is in the, Him as our resurrected Lord. He is the first fruits, meaning He is the first one that died and physically rose again. And everyone that is placed in the, in the word in, means in Christ, will rise again the same way He did. You don't rise again on your own, but your faith places you in Christ. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 6, 1 through 5, 1 through 6. That if we've been buried with Him, we will also be what? Raised with Him. And so you've got to understand, it's by faith that we are placed in Christ, and it's a work that God does by grace. So if you are in Christ by faith, you will be raised. And you will be raised to new life. He goes on and he says, So even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, you've got to understand, fallen asleep was a euphemism. It, it doesn't mean like they're taking a long nap. That doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean soul sleep. It was a euphemism that was used during the time that people understood that it just meant they died. So, even so, God will bring with Him those who have died. And it's, it says in, in some translations, it literally means through Christ. Again, referencing Romans chapter 6. Died through Christ. I consider my life dead to the world, alive in Christ. So, one of the things that this does is this refutes the concept of annihilationism. Have you ever talked to somebody and you say, well, what, what, what's going to happen to you after you die? And they say, what? You just die. You're annihilated. There's nothing left. There's no life. Well, the Bible teaches something completely different. That there is life after death. 
And within this, for those that are in Christ, that we've fallen asleep through Christ, or died in through Christ, that we'll be brought back with Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8 says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present at home in the Lord. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, 13-14 says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We are also believed, therefore we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus, note, will raise us also with Him and will present us with you. The Bible is very clear that those that are in Christ will be raised and are with Christ. When? The moment you stop existing on this earth. To be absent from this body, instantaneously you're present with the Lord. You're not floating in the air. There is no soul sleep. You're not waiting to be awakened or any of these other things. And so, as Paul was saying this, what is he, again, what is he trying to get across to the church that's grieving? Your loved ones are not gone. You're going to see them again. When am I going to see them again? One of two ways. Either you die and you go to be with them, or you're alive and Jesus brings them back with Him to you. You will see them again. Because, again, they lost hope because they thought that there is no life afterwards. So then Paul says, okay, I'm going to give you a little snippet of how this reunion is going to take place. Look at verses 15 to 16. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. How is Paul going to bring comfort? You're going to see your loved ones again. How is this going to happen? Well, this is a reunion. It's important to understand that in verse 15 it says the dead in Christ. Not everyone participates in this resurrection or this reunion, which is sad because if they died outside of Christ, you will never see them again. That I would grieve over. But the focus is those that are brothers and sisters that they're grieving on, their, on the death of the believer. And so he's trying to bring encouragement. So the dead in Christ, note, are united with Christ prior to the living. Dead believers are united with Christ prior to the living. Now, please follow along. I don't want to hurt your heads. Okay? When are the dead in Christ united with Christ prior to the living? Let me say it again. When are the dead in Christ united with Christ prior to the living? When they die. First step. You die, you're united with Christ. You follow? Okay. 
Then the Lord will descend from heaven with a loud command, the voice of an archangel, and the trump of God will call. Those that were dead and the living are caught up together with together in the clouds. They'll meet the Lord in the air. The Lord brings back the dead in Christ. Then the living in Christ are united together in the air with the Lord. And we will be with Him forever. All believers will be with the Lord for how long? Are you sure? Thank you. Now, how do we know the dead in Christ are united with Christ at death? Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56, and also 59, at the death of Stephen. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into the heavens, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 59. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He sees him and he goes to him. No soul sleep. No floating around cherub. He's dying. And he sees heaven. I've been around a lot of people that have died. And it's interesting to me what they do and what they say. Lloyd Helgerson pointing at the corner on the, on the wall. I'm almost positive there was an angel that was there. I was in a hospital room where a person was dying and the person asked, who is that person standing next to you? And I looked, there was nobody there. Lorraine Minical on Monday. But apparently for the previous days, her daughter was saying that she was having conversations with Ken. I'm sure it was what she perceived as as Ken was an angel ready to escort her. We know this to be true. That, that we transition and we are transformed within this. Paul states, note, this is not my idea. He says, this is the word of the Lord. This is not Paul's concept, so we don't argue with it. This is God's word, it's not his opinion. Whenever Paul gave his opinion, he said, I, Paul, not the Lord, is how he would rephrase it within this. So he's giving this, this, this context of the reunion of the believers to comfort one another. Verse 17, well, the believers are caught up in the air. Now, this is where people get weird. So please don't get weird on me. The Greek word is harpazo. It literally means to be caught up or seized with the purpose of removing, to be, to remove, to be put away. The word is not rapture. The word is harpazo, and it's, and it's used to be snatched away or caught up to be taken away. The Latin word for harpazo is raptus. It's where we get our word rapture from. And it's speaking of the, and the early church used it to talk of harpazo for the, the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is not only referenced here, but it's referenced by Jesus. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus says, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, note, I will what? Come again and receive you to myself, 
that where I am, you may also be. Jesus spoke of the rapture within this. Furthermore, Paul would say the same thing, or similar, 1 Corinthians 15, 51-54. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, what did we hear about in Thessalonians? This trumpet? For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. We will be changed. Metamorphosis is the word. Transformed. For this perishable must put on imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will put on imperishable, mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying as written, death is swallowed up in victory. Paul taught about the rapture within this. This is not the second coming of Jesus. In the second coming of Jesus, taught about on the Mount of Olives, Jesus comes down and touches earth. Paul's clear. He doesn't come down and touch earth within this. In his second coming, he's establishing his millennial reign, his thousand-year rule. Paul's very clear. He's coming to take the believers home within this. There are a couple of different views within this, and you can watch it online or take notes. The premillennial, and you'll hear this word premillennial, holds to the fact that the rapture takes, a, takes place before the thousand-year reign of Jesus. That's what a premillennial is. They believe that, that the rapture will take place. They are a dispensationalist that takes the Bible literally. A premillennial will, will take the Bible literally. This is what it says. This is what it means. For example... We don't believe, a premillennial will not believe that the church is Israel. The church and Israel are two separate entities. That there's a literal thousand year reign and that there's a literal seven year tribulation and they'll be divided on the rapture. A premillennial will be divided on the rapture whether they're going to be uh, pre-trib or mid-trib and we'll cover that in a minute. And it will be a minute because we're going to run a little long. But Then there is the, um, within this, there is the amillennial. The amillennial is what's known as a preterist. Have you ever heard that term? You can Google it or whatever. They believe that the, that the Bible was completely fulfilled in 70 A.D. and that everything after that is just um, allegorical. They believe that the church and Israel are the same within this. That they merge together as one. There's no literal millennium. There's no literal tribulation. There is no rapture. Um, and, and the resurrection, there's one resurrection and it and actually begins in eternity. That's what an amillennial position. A postmillennial does not hold to a rapture event. They believe um, that there is a millennial reign, but that the church is gathered up at the end and there's only one resurrection at the end. So, out of all of them, in all transparency, I'm premillennial. Premillennial takes the, the Word of God literally. And so we take these things literally within this. You can study them all. We can debate them. We can talk about them. As long as we agree on Jesus, we're good. Now, as far as the views of the rapture, there, there are basically four different views of the rapture, and I have slides to help you out with it. So, as we take a look at the slides, the first one is the pre-tribulation, um, pre-tribulation position. So that the rapture takes place prior to the tribulation. What is the tribulation? When you study Daniel, 
and the 70 weeks of Daniel, there were 69 weeks or 69 time periods that were there up until the day the 69th time period ended on Palm Sunday. Then that clock stopped. We entered in what's called the, the church age or the age of grace that's in that. Now, something starts that clock, and there are, there's one seven that's left, or one seven-year period that is left within that. And it's known as the tribulation period. It's also known as Jacob's trouble, according to Zechariah. And so when we take a look at this, the pre-tribulation, and again, when we get to Revelation, I'm going to unpack all of this again for you. So don't, don't worry about it. You just got to stick around long enough for Revelation. But you know what's really cool? If Jesus takes it home, they don't have to do it. So that's kind of cool, too. But within this, so there is a seven-year period that is consistent in Daniel's 70th week. It's broken down on time frame, and I'm not going to give you the numbers because it'll hurt your head. It's broken down into the numbers in two, three-and-a-half-year periods. Um, in a pre-tribulation position, the church is taken out, ushering in the tribulation period, when the Antichrist signs a covenant, and then halfway through that covenant, he does what's called the abomination that makes desolate, where he declares himself in the temple as being God, and then all of the judgments take place, and that, that period would continue until the second coming at the end of that seven-year period. Within that, the church is removed and the Holy Spirit is removed within that period of time. The mid-tribulation view is this, that the church is taken out mid-trib, so the tribulation period does begin, but three and a half years in, things get bad when, he when the Antichrist declares himself as being God, and that's when God's wrath gets poured out within that. Great tribulation period, Jesus comes back within that. Um, and it's the abomination, that desolation, that brings the wrath of God. The third view is called the pre-wrath view. In the pre-wrath view, the church remains all the way through the tribulation, past the abomination that makes desolation, and is raptured up right before Revelation 16. When you read Revelation 16, and it says, And the wrath of God, the bowls of wrath, are poured out. And so a pre-wrath person holds to that position, the church is taken out, right before it gets really, really, really bad, and then the second coming. The fourth position is known as the post-tribulation view. And basically, all the believers go through all of the tribulation, and at the very end, then we're raptured up, and then we turn around and come back. Four different views that are there. And again, as I said, we're going to study in depth within these. But we got to... I want to give you some pointers as you go home and you're going to scratch your head. Whatever view you take, do your homework. Do your homework. But here are some questions that I, I want to pose to you. You have to determine, is there a difference between the church and the nation of Israel? Or are they one the same? The second thing, the purpose of what is the purpose of Daniel's 70th week or Jacob's trouble? Jeremiah verse uh, Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says this: Alas, for that day is great; there is none like it, and it will be a time of Jacob's distress. 
but he will be saved from it. What is the purpose of Jacob's trouble and who are the target, who's the target audience? That's within that. Third, if the tribulation is the wrath of God, is the church appointed to wrath? In our own passage here that we'll cover next week in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11, through 11, it says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as we're also doing. That's in this first letter. Has God appointed the church under wrath? Fourth, is the presence of the Holy Spirit a restraining force that hinders the revelation, the revealing of the Antichrist? In... 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1-10, through 10, it's rather long, but listen to it, or watch it. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken uh, from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or message or letter from us to the effect as to the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes away the seed of the temple of God, displaying himself as God. That's the abomination that makes desolate. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know, notice, this is the key. What, and you know what restrains him, the Antichrist, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness, mysterion, that which is hidden will be revealed, is already at work. Only he, pronoun, who now restrains, will do so until he, pronoun, is taken away. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, bring to an end of his appearance of his coming, that is, the one who is coming in accord with all the activity of Satan, with all the power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deceptions and wickedness of those who perished because they didn't receive the love and the truth and were saved. There are keys there. There are keys to where they're at. I will tell you that from my perspective and what I believe and what I teach, Israel is not the church. There are two separate entities within this. Daniel's 70th week, Jacob's trouble, is for Israel. In context, it's for Israel. The tribulation is the wrath of God, and the church has not been appointed unto wrath. Therefore, I believe we're going to be taken out prior to that. And I know this because in 2 Thessalonians, it says that He, which is the Holy Spirit that dwells the church, has to be taken out for the Antichrist to be revealed. So I land on a pre-trib, pre-millennial point of view within that. Would I, would I break fellowship with someone that was mid-trib? No. I have friends that are pre-wrath. That's fine. But here's the, here's the other key. Throughout Scripture, Jesus always taught His disciples to be ready. The imminent return. The pre-trib position is the only position that puts you in the position of being ready for Jesus' return at any time. 
Every other position could be marked out on a calendar based on Daniel's days to the day within that. And we will meet the Lord in the air for this revelation. And so he says to them this, Be ready and know this. Those that have died in faith, you're going to see them again. And in my economy of, of, of Bible study, it could be any day. Any day. Any day that the Lord decides to come back and take the church home. So, if I have a loved one that died in the Lord, how can I guarantee that I will see them again? If I know that they died in the Lord and died in faith, how can I guarantee that I will see them again? You make sure you're in the Lord. Make sure that you are in the Lord. That you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the only guarantee. And he says, and comfort one another with these words. Next week we'll get into the day of the Lord. And we'll start and we'll do five. God, I thank you for our time. I thank you that we can be in this place and that we can honor you. And Lord, as we go out tonight, Lord, I would pray that the peace that passes all understanding would guard our hearts and our minds, that we would honor you in all our days, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.